Welcome back to the Retro Horror Academy. My name is Daniel Richardson, and this episode we're going to be looking at the year in horror, 1928. Now before I get started, I want to apologize. Uh, so, last episode, 1927, I said, you know, there was nothing, no real stories or movies to talk about except for the ones we were reviewing, but that wasn't true. In fact, there is a very famous Lost film, arguably the most famous Lost horror film, uh, you know, period, that came from 1927, and that film is London After Midnight uh, with Lon Chaney. And yeah, uh, forgot to mention it, and I apologize. Of course, that thing has been lost because, uh, or due to a uh, fire at Universal, uh, you know, wiped out numerous, you know, old old films. Uh, unfortunately, this being one of them. So uh, we've all seen the pictures of Lon Chaney and his vampire makeup or what have you. Uh, so yeah, I apologize. I did not, you know, didn't uh, talk about that one, and I apologize. So. However, 1928, same same kind of deal. There is uh, really nothing to talk about in terms of horror except for these movies. There are five of them we're going to be discussing tonight. And, uh, yeah, we'll get into those five. Uh, however, first, I need to mention that uh, this will be the last uh, year of the decade for horror films. Uh, nothing came out in 1929 or nothing you know substantial. Uh, at least nothing I could find. Uh, maybe there may have been some lost films as well, but... Yeah, nothing for 1929 or 1930. We don't have another year until 1931. However, there will be episodes on 1929 and 1930 as I will be inducting uh, horror icons into our prestigious Horror Hall of Fame. So, uh, yes, there will still be many episodes coming out for both those years. So, you know, stay on the lookout for them. So, with all that out of the way, let's get to 1928. But you know what I like to do first, before we get into the actual movies, we like to induct somebody into our Hall of Fame. So this person we're going to be inducting, uh, you know, for the most part, it's Penn Riders, uh, with the exception of George Milis, of course, the very first inductee. But uh, the other ones have all been uh, writers, you know, of the horror genre, uh, well before movies. So, uh, you know, all the, you know, he's novelist, if you will. However, we got ourselves a uh, director slash actor, uh, probably more known as an actor, maybe. Uh, well, I guess it depends, you know, which side of the coin you like with this guy. I am talking about Paul Wergner, uh, best known on the directing side for a directing uh, for a directed the Student of Prague uh, back in 1913, and then of course the Gollum trilogy. Uh, you know, we've only covered one of them on this show because the first one is completely lost. The second one is mostly lost except for a reel. Uh, so yeah, the third one's the only one that's you know fully intact. But according to most people, that was the one that, you know, that's like that's the big one. That's the main one anyways. Uh, and then of course on the acting side, uh, in addition to playing the Gollum, uh, or the Clay Man or whatever you want to call him, uh, in the Gollum trilogy. And he, I believe he also starred in if I'm not mistaken in the student of Prague. Either way, he would go on to play the magician, and he's in one of the films that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, so yes, Mr. Wagner, uh, you know, again, his biggest confidence may have been the Gollum, but I think he's a really good actor from this era. I mean, yeah, he's no Lon Chaney, and I'm not going to pretend like he is, 
but I just feel like he has this horror presence about him. He just looks dark and menacing. Uh, he has an air of menace, if you will. As I was doing my research for Magician, I saw that a lot of the uh, critics of the time, the contemporary critics, kind of slammed his performance, and I totally disagree. When I saw The Magician, I thought he was honestly the best thing going in that film. Uh, yeah, and I still stand by that. So, uh, yeah, Mr. Paul Wergner, uh, you know, you may enter the hallowed halls of our horror hall of fame. So you're in good company. So there you go. There is your 1928 horror hall of fame inductee. So let's get on to the movie, shall we? We're going to start things off uh, with number five, a movie called The Ape. It is made right here in America. Uh, basic plot is this uh, ape who... It's supposed to be tame, breaks out of the zoo, and goes on a crazy rampage. This thing uh, would be remade a few years later, and it's probably for the best, because when this movie came out, it was a critical and commercial failure. Uh, in fact, the only thing it's really known for is the actress, the lead actress, Gladys something. It was like her final film, and that's really the only thing that kind of stands out about this film. Uh, probably less said about the, the better. Uh, currently has a 4.5 on IMDb. So there you go. Uh, So we'll move right along to number four, and I'm talking about The Last Warning. Uh, Basically what happens is uh, there's an accident during a stage production, uh, and it shuts down the entire theater house. But five years later, they decide to open it up. It don't want to be by accident. Someone dies on stage, right? And so five years later, they decide to reopen this uh, playhouse, whatever you call those, theaters, I guess theaters, uh, and they decided to bring back the old cast members. Of course, they received the last warning not to do this. So this is directed by Paul Lenny, which actually this is one of two films he would direct this year. This guy was prolific as fuck. Uh, so anyways, uh, the last warning Paul Lenny did almost as a follow-up to The Cat and the Canary, which I was you know, a big fan of from the previous uh, year. And so he was wanting to kind of basically capitalize on that and make this the companion piece to that film. Uh, this is based on another stage play, which may have been based on a novel. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly not completely sure on the specifics there. But either way, uh, the last warning... He brought back a lot of the same actors and actresses from the previous one, and it plays out pretty much the same. It's another kind of whodunit, Scooby-Doo kind of, you know, thing. I think the biggest problem here, and this is not just me, this is pretty much what all the people have said, both contemporary and the uh, current, you know, retroactive uh, reviewers today, that... Yeah, his. I mean, his style's definitely there. Uh, and I will say that. I love... Like, this dude's doing camera work and tricks and moves that, like, no one has ever seen at this time. And I'll tell you right now, as far as directing goes, uh, I gotta say, Paul Lenny's probably my favorite from this era. Like, seriously, I just love the way he shoots everything. I don't know. I think it's just very, It's I don't know, it's very good. It's very impressive for back then. Uh, the big problem here is, it's the plot, it's the script. Uh, everything just kind of feels rushed here. Like, they instantly just go one scene to another. Like, in the other one, I don't know, there was the same amount of characters. You had all these different moving parts, and 
little plots and uh, subplots and, you know, all these characters and everything. And he found a way to make it work then. But for some reason in this one, my God, it just jumps all over the place. And it just seems like it's going really fast. Like there's no time to really stop and be like, what the hell's going on? Uh, yeah, the last warning, uh, wasn't nearly as, as huge in this as I was the previous film. I think it directing wise and the look of it, it looks better than the cat and the canary, but yeah, as far as the story goes, I'm not too, uh, too huge on this. Uh, this would get remade a couple of times. Uh, one was kind of faithful to it, but the other one, I think they just kind of took the name only. And uh, ran through wet rest, but uh, yeah, this was uh, another uh, in the Universal catalog. Uh, not nearly as much comedy in this one as there was in the Cat and the Canary. They kind of played this one a little bit more straight, but there's still you know few moments of hahs and what have you. Um, I will say this one also, you know, it's, it's it's a mystery, and yeah, it's a pretty good one. I didn't, I mean, I had no clue who the fuck was. The killer, if you will, the phantom of the theater. Uh, it does feel very fan of the operation, though. And I think that may be another reason that it kind of falls short because you could draw a lot of comparisons between this and the fan of the opera. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think some of the sets here were uh, reused from the fan of the opera. So uh, there you have that. Uh, this uh, movie currently has a 6.9 on uh, IMDb. And uh, yeah, it ranks number four for us here at the Academy. So. At number three, I'm going to butcher the name of this, uh, Aliron, Al, Alran, fucking Daughter of Destiny is the uh, alternate title here. Uh, Al, Aliran, I think is how you pronounce it, though. I'm going to stick with that. But either way, uh, yes, so this was uh, a German film. Uh, oh, I'm blank on the guy's name, like Henrik Kling, Kling, Heinking, I don't know. Uh Dude did a film a while back. Let me check my notes, see if I got it here. He did a... Yeah, thought I had it here. Guess I didn't. Doesn't matter. Uh, he did a movie a while back ago. Uh, he was one of these, you know, German horror directors, uh, German expression and all that science stuff. The main plot here is uh, this professor, scientist, whatever you want to call him, played by Paul Wagner. There you go. Our Hall of Famer's back at it again. He is trying to, you know, he, it, looking at it from a morality standpoint, he's trying to see, like, could a killer's genes, uh, you know, affect somebody without them really knowing it? Like, you know, can they pass on their traits without knowing it? And so what he does is, he gets the semen from a hanged prisoner and he injects it into a prostitute and adopts the, the, the child. It's a young girl and basically raises her as his own. However, when she grows up, she becomes a bit of a whore. Uh, I'm not sure if that's scientifically proven or not. Who knows? But either way, that's the basis of this movie. Uh, this thing will get remade several more times. Uh, but a lot of people kind of go back to this one as being the kind of be-all, end-all uh, of all the films. Uh, it stars, uh, in addition to Paul Wagner, it has, oh, what was her name? Bridget Helm. Uh, she was from um, Metropolis. And, yeah, looks really fucking hot in this thing. I know, I guess she's like, well, she's dead now, but, you know, for... Being back in 1928, oh man, what a looker. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people will agree. Like a lot of people say, like this is the more, the most erotic uh, 
portrayal of the character uh, in any of the you know future installments or whatever. Uh, so there you have it. Um, yeah, honestly, wasn't as huge on this one. Uh, I know I just gave props to Paul Wagner and everything, and he was you know he's really good in this. But yeah, uh, personally, I would have put the last warning above this one, but that's just me personally. Uh, either way, though, there you go. It currently has a six point two on um, IMDb. So yeah, even people on IMDb have given this one a uh, lesser whatever. But uh, yeah, there you have it. Number three, winner of the Bronze Skull. Forgot to mention that. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Alaron, Al Ronnie, Ronu. Fuck me. All right, going on to number two, shall we? Uh, and this one, honestly, I think a lot of people are going to argue that this should have been the first one. A part of me kind of agrees. I don't know. The last warning wasn't that. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's a toss up between the last warning and this one. Uh, but, anyways, I'm talking about The Man Who Laughs. Uh, this is uh, made here in America as well. Also directed by Paul Lenny. Uh, the story talks about uh, basically it's like a band of gypsies who you know kind of rebelling against the king, and he gets the leader and basically kills the leader, and then takes his son and visibly like mutates his face, like gives him this forever smile, if you will. I don't know how the fuck that would even work, but he does it. Gives him this permagrin. And, uh, yeah, this one actually plays less like horror. And that's maybe why I personally voted it down. Uh, I think that's why the Academy may have as well. Because it really, I mean, there's really nothing horror about this. Uh, it definitely feels more drama and even more romance, I guess. So, this one was actually slated to be done previously. After The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or Dame, depending, I guess, where you from and pronounce it uh you know at that point like i said before uh lon cheney and uh, the author of uh hunchback uh oh victor hugo uh became you know household names and now they're trying to buy up other properties uh the funny thing is the man who lasts was never really a huge book from hugo, uh, victor hugo so uh, it's kind of an odd gamble but they picked it up and it was slated to be with uh Lon Chaney. And you could definitely tell this would have been a perfect Lon Chaney film. Because, I mean, it's like his perfect intact, or his uh, character to play. It literally is like, you know, the sympathetic, you know, man with a deformity. I mean, he's played this so many times uh, with, fuck, uh, the penalty. And then we go back to uh, Hunchback and, uh, oh, Fam the Opera, obviously. Uh, the Unknown. Which I wouldn't, you know, less sympathetic, I guess, but still, you know, playing a man, you know, deformed. But, uh, yeah, like here, this is, like, this screams Lon Chaney. Uh, so, anyways, somehow it fell through. And I'm not sure exactly what happened, but either way, Lon Chaney pulled out, but then he would turn around and do uh, of the Opera instead. So, this thing kind of got put on the shelf. But uh, after Paul Lenny did Cat in the Canary, uh, I'm not sure which came first, if it was Last Warning or uh, the man who laughs, but either way, uh, because of that, you know, Captain Canary, uh, Pauline was given this one. Uh, however, uh, Lon Chaney was busy doing something else, so they went ahead and told him to uh, recast, and they got Conrad Viet, Vietit. I can never say this dude's name right. I need to watch more documentaries where people talk about this guy so I can get the pronunciation of half the shit. Anyways, uh, last scene as uh, Caesar and, uh, or not last scene, but probably most notable for being Caesar and uh, 
the ca- uh, cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh, of course, we would also get my notes out here. He'd also go on to uh, play in the. Uh... Oh shit! I'm blanking on what else he did. Fuck it. Moving on. My notes are shit right now. I had them all stacked up and they're all gone. Anyways, do this on the cuff, guys. I'm doing this on the cuff, just on the fly. So, but anyway, so he got you know him to you know Conrad Veet to you know play the lead. Uh, we got Mary Philbin, who was the lead actress in uh, the Family Opera. She's the lead in this one, uh, playing his you know his his love interest. And uh, yeah, uh, a lot of people from this movie would go on and do pretty good stuff. The guy who did the set design, I believe, would go on and do like Frankenstein, a lot of the Universal monster stuff. And uh, Jack Pierce, the makeup artist, he actually did the face appliance for Conrad V, the, the grin, if you will. And uh, yeah, uh, this one, uh, you know, huge hit, you know, big box office. People really liked it, uh, praised it. But it's kind of the same vein as The Unknown, where everybody was just like, well, it's kind of grotesque. And it's dark subject matter. And it's like it really isn't. Like, I don't know. I put this in the vein. I mean, maybe because of the look, it does look a little creepy when you see the, you know, the man who laughs, the grinning look that Conrad Veet has. Uh, so, I mean, I guess in that instance, yeah, I guess it can be a little bit, I guess for its time. But it really isn't that dark or disturbing at all. And, again, beat-wise, it plays a lot like a hunchback or a family opera kind of thing where, you know, this guy, because of deformity, you know, he just wants to be loved and not looked at as a freak, even though his girlfriend is blind. For whatever reason, he just doesn't feel worthy of her love. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's all right. This movie just, to me, it just fell flat. I think because it, it was just, again, another kind of melodrama as opposed to... And that's the thing I, I really kind of like, you know, the unknown was kind of the same thing. I felt like it was less horror and more just soapy melodramatic drama with some and this one has you know overdoses on the romance for sure uh yeah it is what it is for me personally uh this would also uh, another big side note here this would go on to expire the look of the joker uh and of course it varies on who was inspired whether if it was bob kane or bill finger or some other dude who was writing or drawing for it but either way when they saw this movie just the look of this guy inspired them to make the joker with the permanent grin on his face and i mean it does work it does look creepy af uh this is another one that's been remade a, a couple of times you know later on down the road but uh, again no one's going to top the original uh this one actually has a uh, 7.7 on imdb and it has a hundred percent rotten tomato uh score or ranking or rating or whatever you want to call it so uh yeah there you have it it's our silver skull winner the man who laughs number two so that means there's only one film left from 1928 uh we're looking to france this time and that movie is the fall of the house of usher uh edgar Allan poe another hall of famer uh wrote this and uh, the basic you know plot here is this uh, guy goes to the mansion, the house of Usher, if you will, uh, to check in on his friend. And his friend is obsessively painting a portrait of his wife. However, the portrait of his wife, like it's like the more he puts into the painting, the sicker she gets. And it's almost as if maybe it's taking her life force and going into this picture. Uh, this thing... I have to say, it's 
you know, very artsy. Uh, the look of the film looks great, actually. I will say that. A lot, I mean, again, I can't explain it. There's just certain, certain shots in here that just look more real. Like, I can't explain. Like, all these films we've been watching, it's like you know you're watching it on an old camera uh, something, but there's some camera movement and some camera shots in here. It just looks more clear, more almost documentary style. That I don't know if this makes sense. I'm, I may just be rambling here. It just it had a different vibe to it, a different, different look. It looked real. Like I was looking through a window into this film. That's what it mean. If that makes any sense, I just feel like this movie had a, a more realistic look to it. Uh, stylistically, this thing top notch. Um, and even, I guess, at the time, this thing had so many cuts in it. Like, over 100-plus cuts, which is almost unheard of in these old movies. Uh, so, definitely leading the way here. And so, a lot of people kind of said that this was a very experimental-slash-arthouse film. Uh, and I guess in that regard, it kind of is. And maybe it was viewed like that back then. Uh, this just seems like an old gothic silent film. Or, yeah, silent film uh, to me. And, um, yeah, uh, beyond that... Uh, the big story for behind the scenes was, I guess, the director and the writer wrote this thing together, and I guess they clashed uh, because, I guess, in the original short story by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, the husband and wife were actually, I don't know if it was also or whatever, but they were brother and sister. And so I guess there was kind of this incest angle going on here, and this director was like, no. And the writer was like, yes. And so basically the writer walked off, and the you know director got his way, and they cut out the incest angle altogether. Even with the incest angle taken out, uh, a lot of people have said, like, this is actually the best adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher, and one of the best Poe adaptations, period. One of. I know there's several others out there we haven't gotten to yet. We will. But, uh, yeah, uh, Fall of the House of Usher, though, uh, big time uh, Poe favorite, if you will. For me personally, I don't know. It just, there's just a lot of nothing. And I mean, it's beautiful photography, but it is just a lot of like characters walking down corridors and just lots of silence and the music just kind of plays. Now, I don't know if the music I was listening to was the original or not. I don't think it was, actually. I think I got like a, a version that had like a different uh, score added on afterwards or whatever. But it was just a lot of just that, just characters sitting there and listening to the wind, listening to noises. Uh, the only thing I will say, it's very confusing at the end, and I'm spoiling this. I'm sorry because, you know, this is 1920 fucking 8, so I'll go ahead and drop it. If you don't want to hear spoilers, just go ahead and click off because you already know it's the number one film, and I'm kind of on the bubble. I, I think, honestly, for me personally, man, either The Last Warning or The, the Man Who Laughs should be number one, but um, the, how, the Fall of the House of Usher, it's so slow, but the ending's so fucking bonkers because... It's trying, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's, I guess his wife or whatever, like when they, when she does, she finally does die, but it's almost like the painting's alive, and at the end, the wife just comes back to life, and that's it? Like, it, she crawls out of her tomb or whatever, like there's a tomb in an island in a cave somewhere, and somehow she comes back and walks up to the mansion, and in the end, the whole place catches fire, but the friend and the husband... You know, they, they see, they confront the dead wife, and then they all get out together of the burning house, and it's just the end. Like, it's not even like, I don't know, I figure at the end they look at her and she decompose. Like, the terror. I don't know if anybody remembers the terror with Jack Nicholson and Boris Karloff. I just kind of fairly look at her and she'd be decomposed, or she was a ghost the whole time, and she just, you know, she saved him or whatever. But it's like, no, they all just survive at the end. And you're like, so did she come back? Was she the girl from, from the painting? Because you do see her in the painting, 
move from time to time. But again, this is her crawling out of the tomb. So this is like a reanimated corpse. And either she wasn't dead when they put her in and she just was asleep and then was able to like push herself out. I don't know. I don't know. And that's, I think that's probably one of the things that bugs me the most about this movie, just the ending so fucking weird. But either way, like I said, this thing was a, a huge hit. It is, uh, you know, considered an all-time classic. Uh, it currently has a 7.3 on IMDb and also has a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score. So there you have it. Uh, the Fall of the House of Usher, the winner of the Golden Skull Award, and the number one horror film of 1928. So there you guys have it. For a quick recap of everything, we inducted Paul Wergner into the uh, Horror Hall of Fame. And then we had number five, The Ape. Number four, The Last Warning. At number three... Winner of the uh, Bronze Skull, it's Alaron. Alaron, I, I will never get that right. Uh, at number two, winner of the Silver Skull Award, The Man Who Laughs. And at number one, winner of the Golden Skull Award, The Fall of the House of Usher. So thank you guys for joining me. Uh, tune in next time. Like I said, it'll be 1929. We're going to officially close out the decade. And uh, again, it'll be a short episode because we're just going to do an induction of the Hall of Fame and that is it. But still tune in. Find out who also is going to be added to the Hall of Fame. That's all I have. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, again, anything you know, we appreciate. We're getting lots of views on this show. I'm surprised this show caught on like it did just because we're talking about old uh, silent films from almost 100 years ago. In some cases, over 100 years ago. So again, I'm glad this found an audience. Uh, so yes, please share, subscribe, all that shit you do on YouTube, you know, spread the word, get other people, you know, interested in this. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. So on behalf of the Retro Horror Academy, my name's Daniel Richardson and you're dismissed. <laughs>